This is an interview on the subject of architectural attention with Sylvia Levin. The interviewer was Dario Ricci. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. The interview took place on December 5th, 2012 in Princeton. Okay. Um, uh, all right. Uh, I do think that there are ways in which uh, contemporary experiences, um, and I, I put the qualifier contemporary uh, because that means including images. I mean, images are part of the way contemporary experience is produced. I don't think images produce false experience. They produce a category of experience. Um, I do think that there is a way to mobilize experiences in such a way that they permit new vectors of intellection. And even if it's hard, um, my project would be to maintain that as an as an opportunity, as, an, as a possibility, let's say as a possibility. And I, and I do think in a kind of old-fashioned, here's where I suppose it would be old-fashioned, it does relate to the historical tradition of consciousness raising and changing and so on and so forth. Uh, but I would say that that no longer operates through the principle of demystification and these notions of transparency and explanation, et cetera. I think rather they, they relate to moments in which your perceptual apparatus and the perceptual regime are dis misaligned. That happens from time to time. And those are moments in which you no longer have to see, as Diderot says, the way the blind see, even if they the way the blind see in perspective, even if they can't see. So those, to me, are very significant moments. I personally am interested in the ones that happen, uh, uh, you know, let's say more subliminally, um, but I'm not intrinsically against the big show that does it. I just find the small peripheral vision, distracted version to be... Um, potentially more successful and also less culturally problematic. Last December, Daria Ricci, a doctoral candidate at the Princeton University School of Architecture, interviewed Sylvia Lavin to make this piece for attention. Sylvia is a leading figure in contemporary architectural history, theory, and criticism. She is the Director of Critical Studies in the Department of Architecture and Urban Design at UCLA and a visiting professor at Princeton University. That first clip that you heard is actually from a seminar that she taught at Princeton in the fall of 2011. This interview was done in an attention small recording studio in the basement of the School of Architecture at Princeton University. When Sylvia does her seminar at Princeton, she flies cross-country from Los Angeles every other week, does one class session in the evening and one the next morning, and flies back. During those two days, her schedule is packed because, besides the six-plus hours of class in a 24-hour period, everyone at the school has something they want to talk to her about. Needless to say, when Daria grabbed her for this surprise interview and dragged her down to the small dark room in the school basement, she was already in a state of distraction. And despite all of that, Sylvia still answers Daria with her typical direct and unambiguous style of speaking. Much like the distractedness of Sylvia's cross-country trips, this piece wanders across many different territories for very short periods of time. 
It starts with Sylvia's personal web browsing habits and moves to Peter Eisenman and Walter Benjamin and close reading and distractedness, the role of randomness and chance in art and architecture, neuroscience, and the production and reception of art and architecture. Though it wanders, the question of the nature of the contemporary reader, subject, receiver, spectator, viewer, or user of architecture persists throughout. So, on your uh, own experience over these last 20 years of uh, changing media, how do you think email, uh, Google, or the web changed your habits, so your personal habits of attention? Um. Have they changed my habits of attention? Um, hmm. uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I'm more focused than I used to be because things are just more readily available. So there, by the time I arrive at the thing that I want to write or the thing that I want to think about the thing that I want to look at, um, I'm not already exhausted by the process of arrival. So instead of having to go to the library and find the library and go to the index card and look, you know, by the time I get to where I want to go, I have a lot of energy that I didn't expend on the journey. I know some people mourn that journey they're sad about not having taken the journey because they um, like to remember all of the interesting places that they used to stop by on the way to getting where they want to go and believe that all of those distractions are really the um, uh, sites of the production of new forms of attention. Um, um, but I, but I also think that you can just have more attention <laughs> rather than distracted, only distractions. But, <clears throat> and what about the format? So like uh, having everything available and changing, uh, does that change your level of attention? Let's say maybe the length of your attention, being longer texts uh, or shorter, let's say tweet uh, instead of like essay. <laughs> Um, Do you think this new media had an effect on this? Well, sure, it had an effect on it, but I think it, um, uh, you know, when you ask it in an autobiographical sense, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to answer yeah. because it's just, um, because many things have changed. You gave a 20-year span. Many things have changed over the course of those 20 years, not just the invention of email and Google. So for example, when you read as a graduate student, it's quite different than the way you re read as a full professor, let's say. When you read as a graduate student, you are beholden to a pre-existing body of knowledge. You are often asked to produce literature reviews and make synthetic statements about very large fields, um, which requires that you read lots of things in their entirety. Mm -hmm. When you move into a less institutionally determined uh, reading protocol, you start, I started, I mean, I, I hate the autobiographical thing, but I think that you become freer to read more like a scavenger. You're interested in a certain thing, 
You, you almost always start to read by the index. The index is a way to divide the book or the text into smaller segments. Um, you're less interested in the whole and more in the particular pieces that you want. So I would say that at least in uh, my experience, which, uh, which I would describe as an institutional experience, one going from, again, these other things that have changed over the course of what I'm afraid to say is more like 30 years rather than 20. But over the 30, let's say the field in which I participate has changed a lot. So uh, 30 years ago, if you were to take a comprehensive exam, there was a certain kind of thing that you needed to know. The only way to acquire that knowledge was to read a lot of things in their entirety. Um, but one was also obligated to know like the history of modern architecture, which would mean Alberti to Le Corbusier or some, something along those lines. Nobody, nobody is educated in that way. It's not a whole view of the field. Therefore, wholeness is a category that simply doesn't really obtain in the field. Would I say that Google and email are causally connected to that? N not at all. They, they long predate that. Do I think that um, these institutional and disciplinary and technical histories uh, track and converge in interesting ways? Sure. Can you tell something about the emergency of the term reading, close reading, and formal analysis? Uh, just one second. Um, okay. Um, I'm sorry. Say that again. Maybe uh, I don't. We don't need. To. No, 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 it's okay. Uh, so it, if <coughs> with this is. Can you comment on the emergence of the term reading, close reading, and formal analysis in recent architectural history? For example, Gandelson's uh, text on uh, reading Eisenman and Graves, uh, or an Eisenman own call in his canonical buildings book for the continuation of close reading. So what, the, what does this motif of reading imply for the subject of architecture? The reading part or the close part? The, um, <laughs> the reading, the close reading, and the relation between the two. Uh, hmm. Close reading is generally still contrasted with distracted forms of attention. So we have a dominantly sort of Benjaminian view of this matter. Um, if you look at it historically, if you, if you impose a different historical lens on it, which is to say not the lens introduced already by our own field, which certainly privileges Benjamin as a system of attention definition, um, um, one might discover different alternatives. So in the period of the coming into being of Eisenman as an attention getter, um, this is coterminous almost with systems of indifference 
being produced in other fields. So I'm more interested in indifference versus close reading, um, the need to call for close reading as a kind of antidote to the development of indifference as a strategy, and what it would mean to produce a close reading of something that is made through modes of, dis of indifference. So if you think about um, if you compare Eisenman's work of the late 60s and early 70s, in other words, if you compare the early houses, if you, compare, if you think about what he says about the early houses as having this deep structure, his notion of close reading clearly em emerges as a way to solicit the viewer to be patient enough to read through the superficial building apparatus, which is what you can see, in order to discover the deep structure latent within. So it isn't really an attention system. It's actually a performance, a kind of performative analysis of the ontology he wants to ascribe to the architecture itself which is to say that there is a deep structure that is invisible and that requires labor to get at it. This is happening at the same time, say, somebody like Ed Rocher is taking pictures of every building on the Sunset Strip. Well, every building is an inventory. It's a cataloging. It's a collection that requires very sustained forms of attention. The Sunset Strip is long. There are lots of buildings on it. To get a picture of every single one is not a form of distraction. On the other hand, it is not calling forth some underlying structure, some transcendental, sub, some, something or other that's hiding between there, and in fact produces what you might call a close reading through the mechanisms of an indifferent apparatus of, of reading. Maybe that would be a better way to put it. So I would, for my own interest, not want to have to choose between distraction and closeness, but rather to proliferate forms of attention and to think about these other modes like the indifferent, the, the close, the far, the near, the various other, other possibilities. Benjamin said that one experiences architecture in a state of distraction, as opposed to painting, which one experiences in a mode of concentration. Architecture is more similar to film then because they're both experienced peripherally. Daria asks Sylvia if she would agree with the idea that different mediums produce different attentional modes. Well, I do think that there are different habits of spectatorship. I also think that Benjamin, Benjamin's comments about attention are um, rooted in a, in a very... Um, uh, prescribed de definition of both art and architecture. So I absolutely do not think that all painting demands to be looked at with a form of uh, concentration. Um, 
you know, I think writing when he was writing, he was talking about easel painting, uh, autonomous works of art in museums. Um, and when he was talking about architecture in a form of uh, distraction, he was talking about what today we would call vernacular architecture, infrastructural architecture, etc. He was not talking about monuments. Um, I think that in, you know, he, he wanted not to talk about monuments. He wanted to erase monuments and, um, and therefore asked everybody to look at architecture through distraction, which is a very clever way to make monuments disappear because all of a sudden we're not looking at them. But I, but I think that it was more some, uh, a, a, a new mode of spectatorship that he was working to produce rather than one that was already already there in the field. Um, which is to say that objects and, I mean, if we can still talk about subjects and objects and so forth in that way, they solicit each other, they produce each other in, in, in every moment. Um, so I think that architecture has ways of calling attention to itself and shielding itself from view, as, as uh, does art with a capital A and with a small a, et cetera. But I would like the, eventually the concept of like uh, ra randomness or like chance get into play in architecture and maybe less in art, like something like an accident happening in destruction. Let's say not paying attention, we encounter other kind of in a sur surrealist uh, way. But do, do you mean, that does does architecture have more accidents than... Than art could offer, let's say. It's less uh, um, predictable in a way. One should consider that in this act of, like in, in a destructive way to experience architecture, we can have like uh, more interesting encounters, let's say, than uh, that could happen in art, for instance. Well, I mean, I suppose you could argue that I, I don't know where I'm looking at the, this artwork that is so pristinely yeah. free of accident, right? That I that I um, uh, find interesting. Although, if I go along with the premise, I assume once again, I mean, your, your question presumes that I'm looking at art in a museum yeah, that yeah. has yeah. a regulated flow where there are many yeah, more. So structures in place to keep accidents from happening. I think that that's yeah, what you that's mean. A, yeah, there's right? a control, let's say. That's a control. Right. But on the other hand, the very fact that the experience of art is so institutionally controlled or seeks to be so institutionally controlled, I think you could make the counter argument, um, which is to say that art, therefore, has produced much more than architecture, more radical means of uncontrolling itself. Mm -hmm. So from the point of view of your question, it would precisely be no accident that things like happenings, which are the orchestration of accidental events, have their most intense side of origin in art practices rather than in architectural practices. By the time you get to uh, Bernard Chumi and event and disjunction, for example, which would be a theory of the accident in architecture. I mean, if you go from Alan Caprow to Bernard Chumi, that's quite a time lag mm -hmm. that it took for architecture to figure out a way to instrumentalize the accident. Um, all the way to the present day, if you think about 
uh, you know, relational aesthetics whenever one, whatever one thinks about it, this is for sure uh, meant successfully or not to be the um, uh, art practices that are premised on the triggering of accidental, unpredictable, random experience. And it would be hard to imagine um, an architecture that is as articulate about that problem as those because architects uh, are happy to assume that accidents will naturally befall them and therefore they don't need to produce them. Now Dari asks Sylvia about how art and architecture have shared knowledge in the past 50 years. She asks if Sylvia can think of any moment of art and architecture coming together that can be framed in terms of attention or lack of attention. And in those same terms, what can be said of the current moment? Um, hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I totally understand your question. I, I guess I, I, I think that um, the arts and architecture, insofar as they're different, are often very good readers of each other. And... Um, and I think that they're good readers of each other because they share enough common language that they permit the differences to become visible. So when they start paying attention to each other, um, I mean, it, it used to be that they naturally paid attention to each other and therefore didn't really pay very much attention to each other at all because, again, they were institutionally affiliated, uh, everybody going to the same Ecole des Beaux-Arts or having some notion of the Beaux-Arts that held them all together. Um, with specialization, that natural um, regard, as a, maybe as opposed to attention, um, was no longer guaranteed. And therefore, the interest in the other uh, required a trigger. Um, and the, the trigger is generally mechanisms both of identity and difference. So when they start to come together is probably also a symptom of them coming apart. And so there are these moments, you know, in the, you say the last 50 years, some of them have been the most have been intensely described. So if we think of minimalism, for example, as um, uh, an art practice that began to move from a focus on the object to the spectator of the object, and therefore to the space in which the spectator was located, that notion of the spectator in space produced a kind of conceptual um, link to architecture, although architecture was not thinking of its space in those terms at that time. So that would be one of those uh, moments in which the very overlap reveals an interesting sets of difference. I think we're in one of those periods today, although I think neither the overlap nor the sets of differences are quite as clear to us yet they're still shifting around a little bit. And like if we, so let's, let's shift from attention to memory 
and so that's uh, like a research like neuroscientists have shown that the focused attention and deep concentration of the brain uh, cultivates reflection and critical thought because during such deep reading one's longer term memory is activated and processed so if modes of attention and critical thoughts are bound up with deep memory and if architecture has always been understood to play a role in let's say as an add uh, memory uh, so can we say uh, what might we say again about like architecture role in this question of attention I just can't integrate neurological thinking, um, uh, brain function, and how memory is processed, and that sort of thing. I mean, it, it's. Uh, um, I I I think every time there has been a positivist. By neurobiological definition of art, it's has always revealed itself to be both false and ideologically motivated. Um, so I would rather just construct my own falsehoods and ideological motivations rather than uh, fall prey to the science ones. I mean, I I so I I think I just can't answer that question. While Sylvia didn't have anything here to say about neuroscience, I was reminded of this interesting conversation that took place on the brain, consciousness, and free will between her and a student named Patrick Tierney during a class in which we were reading Catherine Hale's Lev Manovich and Carol Bernalis. How would you say, or would you say, um, that Carol, and, and also, uh, the Lev and also the Kate Hales. How, where would you put all of this stuff in relation to the whole kind of discourse on of the birth of the reader, the kind of post-Bartian? I see it kind of fitting in because again, this is just based on the references that I have kind of taken more logic and even philosophy of mind type classes. But in those situations, you, people try to essentially quantify all of knowledge in a closed formal system. You know, we can basically make logical proofs that quantify knowledge, say. But that just sort of proved to be impossible, simply because, well, um, the brain sort of exists in this messy analog brain state that can't really be enclosed. You know, it'll, if you have one specific input, it'll always have the same output. So this is sort of the, the move to sort of rationalize knowledge. And perhaps, you know, people theorize you can make a sort of knowledge machines using those techniques. So I see that sort of, I see that breakdown in the move to the reader as people realizing, well, we can't, we can't just make a, a literal closed mathematical logical representation of language or any of these other concepts. When that, when that proved to be impossible with these tech, these, these forays into sort of knowledge through logic, you had to say the only way we can really interpret it is to look at a reader. You know, it's almost like the psychological aspect. You see how they read and see how they react because we just can't, we don't, we can't understand the mind. That's, so that's sort of how I see it. Uh, unlike the Krauss, uh, et cetera, th that body of work, or let's put it this way, that body of work is looking at taking as its point of departure in some way the object at hand. 
the object in its various permutations, the object, its position, its technology, its the genealogy of its interpretation, etc. Um, the the Carol, the Manavits, and the Kate Hales are all um, beginning with the object, but ending with the reader. Well, all three of them. It's what they share. It's part of the and and. And I, I don't think it's a, simply an artifact of my selection of things. I think that the, the, the question of the reader-viewer is a very, it's a more dominant topic, I don't want to say subject, it's a more dominant topic in media theory than it is in art and architectural theory today. To, in art and architectural theory, we have user, we have spectator, we have, we have various kinds of categories. But clearly, one of the things in the post-medium thing that is being, uh, that is emerging as a problem is the circuit. To, I mean, I'm a bad electrical engineer, but let's say the circuit between the object and its receiver, in the sense that you're talking about, which then requires some reflection on the capacities, agencies, limitations, character of that receiver. So I'm, I'm either asking you or asking you to make an accounting for how that receiver is represented in these texts. I'm saying, so you didn't say, well, you did use the word psychology, you did use the word psychology, so, but I'm, but I'm wondering, what is that receiver in this? Because you said a brain a lot, you know, I kept thinking of Star Trek, like, remember that episode with the brain in the box? I guess, I guess it was sort of in the Carol sort of classification of tools that sort of made me sort of have more an interpretation of this based on cognition. So in other words, like that's the difference between the, the tool, the screwdriver, and the medium itself. Is one is based on the physical world, and the other one is based on interpretation or cognition, say. I mean, it seems that art is sort of in, in, intrinsically embedded in the reader. So in other words, you can't decouple the two. You can't simply, you can't make a close or a formal system around something that's coupled to the human mind. This is my reaction to some of this. Um, what if, one said, mm -hmm. and I think there are people who have said this, that the human subject is also a tool, the tool of the state. And so this constant deferral to the liberty of the subject, because you can't codify it, but you can codify it up to a certain point, and then that all, all of that codification finally gets undermined by the free uh, mess of the brain. That's essentially what's being described in effect in both of these is a closed circuit, analyzable, quantifiable, measurable, without um, uh, all of that vocabulary, the, the Giotto is a uh, software system, etc., is a way to not deal with um, Oh, traditional aesthetic categories of quality or reflection or beauty or ideality, all of that stuff, all of that stuff is displaced in this um, uh, almost hyper-positivist uh, communications theory. Um, uh, an incredibly uh, rigorously produced uh, closed circuit system, which is then offstage at the very end unaccounted for by either one of these authors, um, exploded by the messy, gelutinous, subjective, free will mass of the brain. Um, that's what I think is happening. Right. And so to which you, you, 
So that's why one argument against that would be, well, uh, the notion that the brain is uh, free will and that one that the brain thinks and has experience, etc., that is also itself not coded by all of those things, that is uh, naivete in the extreme. And all that reader, the free reader, uh, the yeah, the free reader or the undisciplined reader or the reader whose active reading serves as a mechanism of de-disciplinization, that reader who is the reader like of the whole earth catalog, that's the kind of ideology of the whole earth catalog, that reader was born in 1968 and died in 1980. And so, I mean, if you took a logical postmodernist view of the history of you, I think you would have to call it the birth and death of that reader. Um, so why is that reader still hanging around to save new media? I, I mean, that would be my argument. Anybody want to argue against? Okay. So, um... How attentional practices change in art uh, through the shift of, or expansion towards the environment, the field, towards architecture, even? Do you think this shift was uh, accompanied, I mean, was linked by changes in underlying theoretical literature? Uh, this increasing familiarity with books like Merleau-Ponty, Phenomenology of uh, Perception, which, which presented a radical expansion of the idea of perception. There was no longer focus on visual uh, attentiveness, but on corporeal attunement. So what do you think uh, is the connection between uh, attention and perception? Um, I got lost when you said, now that the field is such so good at reading Merleau-Ponty, I, 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 I'm not sure I think that the field is very good at reading Merleau-Ponty. Um, as a field, I mean, certainly there are uh, figures within the field that have developed what they understand to be a line of phenomenological thinking. Um, I think it has generally served the purpose of, in architecture, it has generally served the purpose of reintroducing, if not downright salvaging, a transcendental subject um, by reassuring, by, by first of all asking the architectural subject to be a beholder, by reassuring that beholder that beholding in a certain way will affirm their own subjectivity and will and that this will produce for them a subjectivity that will pr protect them from the ravages of depersonalizing capitalism that's what i think that chain is i don't think that has anything to do with merleau ponty and nor do i think it really describes the nature of personhood today but it definitely describes as one school of thought in architecture.
And like if, uh, uh, let's say we have object, like in a museum, but even uh, an architectural object, like as an object, like a building to look at, what's the role of uh, our object? Or what do you think is can be the role of our object in uh, cause destruction? So how, let's say, destruction is something that's related more to the subject, the beholder, the viewer, so let's say, as looking at something or it's more like a, an effect that a building or a piece of art can have on us so who is let's say the active agent eventually in uh, attention you mean do i do i enter the world distracted or does the world make me distracted, make me distracted yeah uh, i would have no way of answering that question i mean i don't think that I can't imagine that those are separable conditions. I think I can only address that question uh, by, by pointing out that your questions about attention have all been focused on the receiving subject. And you haven't asked about, exactly, you haven't asked about modes of attention of the producer, for example, does one make things in a total state of distraction? Um, what, what kinds of attention happen all along the chain of production? Um, how many different subjects are involved in both the production and reception, etc.? So I don't think it's just a question of the object. Um, soliciting forms of attention or the receiver bringing forms of attention I think that there is a um, that that the, the question limits the chain uh, unnecessarily I'll give you an anecdote so I um, was once walking with with an architect um, in the in the office it doesn't really matter who it was um, and we were going to go look at a project. This was an office that had been not that long before a studio living space office. Mm -hmm. And uh, in other words, where living and working happened all in one space um, in what you might call a focused and concentrated way. Um, as more work came in, the office had to expand. There was no more space, and a separate space in the same building had been acquired. To get to that second space, you had to go out of the first space, up the fire escape, and back into. So we were doing the same thing that we had always done, but we had to take a much more circuitous and, let's say, distracted path to get there. Um, this also implied that there were many more people working in the office. That's why one needed more space. And this person said to me, literally, we were on the fire stairs. In other words, we were in no place in particular, what you might think of as the archetypal Benjamin space of distraction. Mm -hmm. And somebody walked by, and the, and the principal of this firm turned to me and said, um, I used to know everybody who worked for me really, really well because they worked in my living room and showered in my bathroom. 
And now I'm not even sure if that person is an employee or not. So this was a practice that, let's say, was getting distracted by itself. There was not a, I mean, that's why I don't think distraction is probably the best word, but that was not somebody who could know, who could produce a close reading, who could be focused on work in the same kind of way. Um, when you add to that uh, um, practices then that have um, many, many projects going on at the same time, you know that the only way to have those projects make it through production is for the, quote, principles to pay less attention to each one. Now, does that mean they're unfocused or they're distracted or they produce more forms of attention at different moments? I, I don't know. But, but, I, but, I, but I would say that the logic of the question is not just the formal thing about the object or uh, the receiver, but really needs to be thought in terms of work and space and all of those kinds of things if you want to have a robust analysis of the question of, it, of attention. Which other words would you use? more than attention or distraction. Well, that's why I said indifference. I mean, indifference is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a kind of affect. It's a lack of caring. So how much do you care about something? What kind of caring? What value does it have? Is it, is it super important? Is it not so important? Um, do we evaluate importance in terms of time? The longer you spend on something, does that mean the more you care about it? Um, uh, I mean, these these are questions. I'm not I'm not saying yes or no, but I think that this would be the uh, you know you might think about other kinds of vectors. Um, so in the anecdote of the office that I was describing before, there I think rather than attention and distraction, you would probably have intimacy and anonymity, uh, closeness and distance. Um, uh, love and indifference. I mean, these might all be, uh, and these are probably all are, um, uh, let's say, vectors of connection um, that have different attributes that we might, that we might discuss. To close the interview, Daria asks Sylvia to say something more about the term affect. Why is it reappearing in architectural discourse today, and what does its reappearance say about the nature of the contemporary subject of architecture? Well, I mean, affect is one of those terms that comes and goes, um, and it's just coming again. Um, it's coming again, and um, well, you know, I mean, I think it's fairly, it's, its current use is relatively recent, and I think that it, it, um, has to do with the field's effort to introduce some system of engagement that is not reducible to a strategy of negation. I think that um, some people who are attached to the kind of prehistory and history of phenomenology like the term affect because it's an easy way to smuggle uh, poetics and universal feelings into a, a, a critical field. Um, 
other people who believe in that don't like affect because it's a way to smuggle the wrong sets of feelings into the field. Um, for some, affect is, a, is an effort to try to not pit um, Gideon's split between, you know, not, not, not just Gideon's, but most famously articulated in space-time and architecture, the split between thinking and feeling, et cetera, et cetera, um, um, as a way to try to um, reintroduce um, yeah, something other than conceptual negation into the way architecture can perform in the world. Sylvia had more to say about affect in the same seminar that you heard earlier. Here's the clip. The first person you hear is Jose Arriguez, who is a doctoral candidate at Princeton School of Architecture. I mean, the, the whole discussion about affects is, in some sense, um, I mean, um, concerning the subject, uh, per se, no? one, one could say, no? I mean, to your question whether that's relevant today or not. Um, the, the fact that your your affections are mediated through phenomenological reactions as they are caused by a particular experience of a building or of a work of art and the way that impacts on the subject, it's, uh, I mean, sort of goes in that direction maybe. I mean, just to your question whether we can uh, think of some discussion on those lines that is going on today. Well, I think one of the things that's going on today is the, the effort to extract affect from feeling states, to put it, uh, to put a big problem, kind of simply, in the, in the sense that, um, uh, in the sense that feeling states, this is the way they're described, I'm not saying what they are, I'm saying the way they're described, that feeling states are associated with uh, um, categories defined by language, and affects are generally understood or generally hoped to be pre-linguistic. And that the resistance mechanism has precisely to do with however momentarily something might remain pre-linguistic. So the classic um, example is um, uh, that's used, you know, the way, uh, I don't know, the old Aristotle versus Plato used to be described, there's the chair and there's the idea of the chair and there you have Plato and Aristotle talking to each other. Uh, the contemporary version of that is, um, uh, I cry when I feel sad. That would be one argument. And the other meant is, I feel sad when I cry because it has essentially been dictated that crying and sadness goes together. So I am now incapable of having any feelings other than the ones that are dictated by the sign cry sadness. And if one separated those two, feeling state from action, some different affect might emerge, one that would go and produce a new idea. I mean, I, th I think those, those are the arguments, uh, reduced to very super simple terms.
thank you to Sylvia Lavin for taking the time to sit down with us. This piece was produced by myself, Griffin Ofeich, for Attention, the Princeton Audio Journal for Architecture. What do you do with junk space? What do you do? Once junk space has become the same as the painting, which is essentially what this argument would suggest, what do you do as an architect? Because you don't have the luxury of being able to step into the larger frame of the gallery. The larger frame is the world. That's exactly the point of junk space, that it's taken over everything. So you don't have this simple mechanical must go farther, must go a step farther. You don't, you don't have that luxury. In order to try to go farther, you have to produce new concepts to make new territories. It's the only way to do it, because the because the all over and all at once really is all not not metaphorically all over, but in fact all over, in fact all over. The museum is now all over. How do you get out of that? I mean, there there, there is no outside. There absolutely is no outside. So the only way then to think about it is to produce new concepts that don't belong to that logic of either the all over or the all at once, I, I would imagine. You've been listening to an interview on the subject of architectural attention with Sylvia Lavin, thanks to Daria Ricci, doctoral candidate in architecture at Princeton University School of Architecture, for being our host, and to Sylvia Lavin, chair of the PhD program at UCLA, and visiting faculty at Princeton University for being our guest. The interview was produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture, by Griffin Ofish.